Thank you, Katie. Um, sorry to get the lectern, Ben. So thank you very much. We are talking about emotions this morning a lot, aren't we? So thank you for that illustration, and thank you girls for being um, a great Elijah and an angel. And um, I don't know how you're feeling today. The challenge of face masks is a real problem for actually uh, all sorts of things. All the logistical factors of even this morning, which microphone we use, trying to put a face mask on and off with our microphone here, but also the fact that we can't really see very easily, can we? Um, what's going on? It's quite hard just from our eyes to tell whether we are happy, sad, smiling, angry, whatever it is. I'm looking around this room, and um, I have no idea what any of you are thinking or feeling. Normally, you can gauge a little bit. You can see um, some smiles or some, I don't know, some sadness or some yawning. It's quite good if you're feeling tired and yawning, isn't it? A face mask kind of uh, protects you from all that. So, hence, um, maybe we should all... All ages have some of these we carry around in our pockets just to show what we're really feeling. Um, I had a great idea, business idea yesterday, um, is to have a face mask that has a digital display screen on it and it mirrors what's going on underneath so you can see whether you're happy or smiling mirrors your mouth. And it'd be great because if you've got bad teeth, you can have really good teeth on the screen and you wouldn't have to pay thousands of pounds for it. Or uh, if you're the sort of person who likes a little bit of Botox on your lips, you could uh, have that on your screen without needing to actually pay for it. But um, less of that. But the challenge of emotions and displaying them is difficult, isn't it? With these face masks and in these times. And I don't know what type of person you are uh, when it comes to emotions. Are you the kind of person who uh, wears their emotions on their sleeve? and is very aware of what you're feeling at any particular moment, and is really happy to express your emotions. You may be here as one of those kind of people. I can see some of those uh, in this room. Um, or you may be the kind of person who just doesn't do emotions. You know, there's a sense that actually they just make things far too complicated. You're not really quite sure what you're really feeling anyway. So it's, uh, it's best to just, just ignore them, push them to one side. Let's stick with logic. And uh, there are some of those people in the room. And also, there's a whole load of us who are somewhere in between on that spectrum. But wherever you find yourself on that emotional spectrum, how have you been feeling over the last 15 months? As we went into lockdown, as we've journeyed this extraordinary time. Um, and we've had many ups and downs, haven't we? And I think, like many of us, many of us would admit that it's been a bit of a roller coaster in terms of our emotions. Certainly it has for me. I can, I can really relate to that understanding of emotions going up and down. There have been moments for me when it's been exciting, particularly at the start of lockdown, we're trying to work out how we do new things and make it all work. There have been moments of just real frustration, moments of sadness, moments of joy. And at times, if I'm honest, I've actually felt really low. And uh, maybe like me, the last 15 months for you have brought out a wide variety of emotions in you. Or at least you've noticed that there's been something going on inside that you can't quite put your finger on. Uh, for some of us, it has felt like driving along on a bumpy road where you are just being bounced all over the place. A bit like uh, I cycle a, a little bit around Southampton on days when I've pumped my tires up too hard and cycled on some bumpy Southampton back streets uh, with potholes all over the place. I'm getting bumped around all over the place. And for some of us, at times, it feels like that. And yet somehow, as Christians, 
we often feel that it shouldn't be like that. You know, if we've got Jesus in our lives, if we're good Christians, then actually, surely it should be smooth. It should feel like we glide over the bumps. Like rather than being on my bike with the tires pumped up too hard, we're sitting in the back of a Bentley and just gliding. And the whole time just feeling serene, um, calm in every situation, an ever-present smile of contentment on our lips. But we're not created like that. God didn't create us uh, uh, like that. He actually created us with a wide variety of emotions. And look at Jesus as the example of the perfect human being. He had strong emotions. We read about him getting low, feeling sad, and at times being angry. As we look over the stretch, the wide stretch of the Bible, and uh, we see many of the heroes of faith, actually, many of them experienced a huge roller coaster of emotions fear and anger and sadness and depression, joy, excitement. And this morning, we're going to look at one of those great heroes, we're going to look at Elijah. Now, when we pick up the story, Elijah is a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel at a terrible time in his history. Ahab is a really evil king, and his wife Jezebel is even worse. She's bent on wiping out all worship to Yahweh, the true God, and instead um, seeing the nation worship the detestable god Baal. She's killed many of the prophets and priests of God, and uh, as a result, God sends a drought on the entire country. It's going to be no rain for several years. And we pick up the story where after three years with no rain, Elijah steps out of hiding. And he goes with a great challenge to Ahab. And it's a challenge to determine who really is the true God of Israel that the people should worship. Is it Yahweh? Or is it Baal? So both Elijah and the prophets are going to prepare a sacrifice, but they're not going to set fire to it themselves. They're actually going to call on their respective gods to send fire to burn it up. And whichever god sends the fire, he's the true god. Simple. Simple challenge. So 450 prophets of Baal have laid the sacrifice on the altar, and they spend all morning and into the afternoon calling on their God to send fire, and nothing happens. So then in the afternoon, the solitary figure of Elijah steps forward, and this is what we read in 1 Kings chapter 18. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench around it. At the time of sacrifice... The prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice. The wood, the stones, and the soil, it also licked up the water in the trench. 
When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. He's done it. In this stunning moment, Elijah has seen God this demonstrate his power and authority to Ahab and all the people of Israel in ways that they could only have dreamed of. The people are convinced that Yahweh is God and they fall on their faces and worship. So this is the pinnacle of Elijah's career. The moment of victory when he's proven his enemies wrong. He's proven God's enemies wrong. And what's more, later that day when Elijah prays, the three-year drought ends and the heavens open and the rain pours down. What must Elijah have felt in that moment? What sense of achievement and satisfaction and joy and vindication and relief Just imagine what he's feeling then. And yet, just a few verses later, we see a very different Elijah. He's running for his life from the anger of Jezebel. And we pick the story up in 1 Kings 19. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. So soon after the height of his success and victory, Elijah finds himself absolutely rock bottom. So low, in fact, that he wants to die. He wants to end it all. That's it. Now, I spoke last week, for those who are here or those who are with us online, um, I spoke about three phases of disaster management, uh, didn't I? About emergency response, stage one, um, recovery, two, and rebuilding. And how important it has been recognized um, to actually leave sufficient room for that second phase, that recovery phase, before rebuilding takes place. And we recognize that's a really important thing for us as a church as well. Well, um, as you'll see in a moment, that the experts who research these things have actually had a look at what the emotional impact is of these various phases. So we'd have the slide online, up on the screen. Is it there? Great, fantastic. So if you look at this, this actually shows the phases of disaster. On the left-hand side, you've got emotional highs and emotional lows. Up the top is people feeling pretty good. Down the bottom is people feeling pretty low. And we can see that as you journey, uh, you've got a little phase pre-disaster. Suddenly the disaster hits. There's impact. It might be an earthquake or a flood or a a, a pandemic. Um, Actually, a lot happens. People get stuck in and engage with dealing with the issue and the problem. There's a lot of heroic activity. And actually, what happens is this honeymoon period where people are, though something terrible is happening, there's a sense of really galvanizing together as a community and seeing everyone come together. But after a while and fairly soon after that, often moves into a period of disillusionment as the dust settles and the impact is really, really felt. But then over time, gradually, there's this working out and working things out. Often uh, it takes about a year after that, but there's often a dip at the year's anniversary before gradually the reconstruction starts to take place and people start to get back to some extent on an even keel. 
Now, if we think about Elijah's life and the story we've just had, where do you think he is at the point we find him in the story? He's probably at the bottom, isn't he? He is rock bottom. But look what's happened before. He's experienced this honeymoon period, this heroic event where everything has just worked. He's had this victory over the prophets of Baal, but now he finds himself rock bottom at the bottom of the graph. And if I were to ask you now, where would you be on that graph? Where would you place yourself in your emotional state, wherever you find yourself? Can you place where you think you are? At the moment, can you see some of your journey through COVID on that? Because I do think this actually captures really well some of our journey, our corporate journey uh, throughout the last 15 months. Many of us actually experienced a bit of a honeymoon period when things started off. You know, despite the physical isolation when we first went into lockdown, some of us actually discovered a new connectedness on online community or actually with our neighbors as we reached out with people over Zoom and WhatsApp and online church, or as we actually met with our neighbors in the street in ways we've never done before. I actually remember quite clearly comments at that time of people saying, um, actually, I've never felt so connected to the church community, which seems so strange in the circumstances, or hearing people saying, well, I've, I've been connecting with my neighbors in ways that I never had before. But as lockdown wore on, and became increasingly tedious and frustrating and lonely, much of that early optimism disappeared. And many of us actually experienced emotional lows or certainly emotional fluctuations. You know, the loneliness of isolation, the exhaustion and challenge of juggling work and uh, homeschooling and family responsibilities. You know, the illness that some of us experienced when they we caught COVID. The frustration of just feeling that life has stopped and you can't get on with the things that you were hoping to get on with. And some experiencing incredible busyness and the pressures of work and and looking after the people that we're responsible for, or for others actually finding there's too little work because work has dried up. And what do we do now? And the financial impacts of all of that. Now, I wonder if any of you have ever experienced in the last 15 months any of these things? Shock, denial, and disbelief. Confusion, difficulty concentrating. Anger, irritability, irritability, or mood swings. Anxiety and fear. Guilt, shame, self-blame. Withdrawing from others. Feeling sad or hopeless. Feeling disconnected or numb. Or how about any of these? Insomnia or nightmares, fatigue, being startled easily, difficulty concentrating, racing heartbeat, edginess and agitation, aches and pains, muscle tension. Do any of those resonate? Can you uh, relate to any of those? Now that is actually a list of some of the emotional, psychological and physical symptoms that people encounter when they have experienced trauma. Now, when I first read that list, um, I was actually really surprised because I can say for myself, I have experienced some of those symptoms in the last 15 months, but I would definitely never describe what I've experienced as trauma. That feels far too uh, severe. Uh, That sounds far worse than anything I would 
claimed to have been through. So I decided uh, it'd be helpful to speak to someone who actually knows far more about trauma than I do. So um, I had a conversation with Ruth Denton, who is a clinical psychologist working with families and children who've experienced trauma. And we're just going to hear a little bit of that conversation now. So Ruth, trauma is something that I've been reading about more recently in the context of lockdown and uh, the global pandemic. Now, trauma is something that I've always assumed comes with a very significant event in life, maybe a car crash or injury in war or very difficult family circumstances when you're young. But can you explain to me um, what, what is trauma and, and, and how do we experience it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I think that's a really common um, perception is that it's got to be something really big and really dramatic um, to be classed as trauma. But I guess what we're learning more and more now kind of as a society and in terms of research and, and clinical work is that trauma is just anything, any situation that overwhelms our ability to cope in the moment, um, over, overwhelms our resources and kind of is bigger and bigger than our meaning our ability to make meaning about it so often we we go around we hear about difficult things day to day but we make sense of them we kind of put them in context um but there are some situations that are just too big for us and we can't make meaning of them can't make sense of them and that um overwhelms our brains and our bodies and and we have huge stress responses and those are generally now classed as as traumas so is is trauma something that some of us could have experienced over the last 15 months as a result of lockdown and, and the global pandemic? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, there's there's so many things that have happened in the last year that have disrupted our day-to-day -day sense of safety, um, our ability to kind of yeah feel safe in our environment and with other people. Our routines have been disrupted. Um, we've been put under undue stress, socially isolated, all the things that make us feel safe and kind of calm um, and regulated in our environment have been turned upside down um, and that's really stressful and it's likely to have caused quite a lot of trauma reactions for people let alone the the losses that have been involved and I guess it really depends on people's day-to-day -day circumstances because from one day to the next we may have more or less resources you know some days we feel like we've got lots of energy to manage whole host of things that come at us from the day and at other times we don't and actually COVID has taken away a lot of our our coping strategies and things that help us feel resourced so a lot of us have probably felt quite overwhelmed for long periods of time over the last year um which is yeah it's quite traumatic for our minds and bodies and and, and has how has lockdown and i suppose the isolation that that's called how, how has that contributed to that challenge or or, or made it harder for for us to, I suppose, process some of the mm. experience. Well, I guess one of the really backwards things about a pandemic is, you know, lots of the research that's been done with, you know, more uh, well-recognized kind of social traumas in, you know, kind of um, earthquakes and, and wars and things like that. Lots of the research says that the way to recover from those is to be connected and, and to seek kind of social connectedness. But one of the things the pandemic has done has told us that the one thing we need to get through is the thing that's unsafe. It's a threat. Being close to people socially and in proximity to people is, is potentially dangerous and is going to make the situation worse. So actually that the thing that we need we've been denied um for the sake of the health of the community and that's that's 
that isolation um, has probably made things a lot worse. And, and so obviously our environment, the restrictions have made it harder, I suppose, to process trauma. But how do people recover from trauma? How do they process it? Yeah, well, I mean, it's different for every person. So there's no specific timeline. Um, there's no specific time frame, really, in terms of saying, oh, you know, six months and, and you're fine. It's different for everyone, depending on what your experiences have been, your own personal circumstances, your, your mental health history, you know, whether you've already struggled with stuff in the past um, and how you've been personally affected. But the kind of key themes tend to be around um, kind of prioritising connection and relationships, um, building safety back into your day-to-day life, so kind of creating routines where you can, um, even if it's small things like habits throughout the day that kind of ground you and make you feel like things are predictable and safe and not uncertain and stressful. Um, you know, taking care of our bodies by eating well, exercising. You know, everyone says, oh, you've got to eat well and exercise, but those things are really important for giving our body the energy to cope with day-to-day challenges and ups and downs and, and looking after our bodies is a really key way of, of recovering. Um, but also, I guess, just making space to acknowledge what's happened and the feelings that have come up, perhaps feelings that people didn't expect to arise or they might have been surprised by in a way that's meaningful for them. Because actually, you know, for some of us, talking about and acknowledging our feelings doesn't have to mean sitting down really intensively with a therapist and churning over stuff. It can just mean, you know, acknowledging in a text or a WhatsApp, oh, you know, I, I read something on the news and it really bothered me. Um, to, to a close friend, someone that we trust. Um, but, but finding a way that's meaningful for, for us to do that is, is really important, I think, because it acknowledges um, the losses, it acknowledges what's happened, it kind of makes space to name it rather than pretending it hasn't happened. Um, and I guess other things as well are kind of taking the time to tell our stories, to talk about what's happened and the impact that's been um generally with someone that someone that we trust you know we know is going to listen to us well thank you so you're so helpful uh, to chat to you this morning thanks very much for your time that's all right so it seems that trauma is something that many of us may have experienced to some degree or another over the last 15 months and it was certainly something that elijah had experienced and was struggling to come to terms with And what's fascinating in the light of what we've just heard from Ruth is the way that God cares for and restores Elijah from that point where he is absolutely rock bottom. Ruth talks about the importance of caring for our bodies, that is eating well, exercising, getting good sleep. She talked about the need to build safe places, routine, predictability. She talked about making space to acknowledge what we've been through and tell our stories. And she talked about the importance of connection, of relationship and community to help us recover and to thrive. And we see God in the next chapter providing all of these for Elijah. So firstly, in Elijah's moment of deepest despair, God gives him food. He cares for his body and he also gives him sleep. In 1 Kings 19, says this, Elijah lay under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. 
The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. God meeting his physical needs for food and for rest. God then leads Elijah to a place of safety where he can feel secure. A little further on in 1 Kings 19. Strengthened by that food, Elijah traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he went into a cave and spent the night. Now God leads him into a cave on the same mountain that Moses encountered the presence of God and where Moses received the Ten Commandments. And then God proceeds to reveal to Elijah his presence his closeness, not in a mighty wind, not in an earthquake, not in a raging fire, but in a gentle whisper, in a reassurance of his care for him. And then he asks Elijah a question, allowing him to tell his story and acknowledge all of the pain and all of the trauma that he's experienced. Verse nine, and the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. It's interesting, actually, God asks him that question twice and allows him to say the same thing twice. God is giving him the chance to process what's happened in the time and space that he needs to do that. But then God recommissions Elijah. He gives him a clear purpose and mission to be getting on with. And he sends him to anoint Elisha to be his companion, to have someone who will walk with him and someone who will ultimately be his successor. And then finally, God reminds Elijah that he is not alone. Elijah had believed that he was the only one left, that everyone else who followed God had either been destroyed, killed, or had abandoned God. But actually, God tells him that there is a whole community of faithful followers that Elijah can be a part of. Verse 18, yet I reserve, this is God speaking, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. And so begins that final reconstruction phase of Elijah's journey. If we look at the graph again, we'll see that this is the point that allows Elijah to come to terms with what's going on and to be set back into a new place of hope and a new place of community and a new place of purpose. To recover from the trauma that he had experienced, Elijah needed to have his body cared for. He needed to find a place of safety. He needed time to acknowledge what had happened and to find connection and relationship with others. And this is what many of us will need over the coming weeks and months. And the wonderful truth is that we are part of an amazing community where we can find many of those things that we need. And we have a generous God who knows exactly what we need. So let's continue to look out for one another, to stay connected and not be afraid to ask for help when we need it. Knowing that as we journey, God is with us. We are with each other and we are for one another. And as we journey forward, God is going to lead us into new hope and new space for each of us.
Let's pray. Father, we recognize that you created us as emotional beings. Sometimes in our culture, it's so easy in English culture to push the emotions down, think it's all got to be about uh, the way we think things through in our heads and just ignore that aspect of who we are. But you created us as emotional people as well as people to think. Not that our emotions would rule us, but not that our head would rule us, but we would be whole people. And Father, we recognize that there has been much challenge as well as uh, moments of great joy in the last 15 months. But we do ask that as a community, you would knit us together, draw us together. And for each of us, that you would help us to discover in one another, in this community, and in those around us, the space that we need. That uh, where we have experienced an element of trauma, that you would lead us through into a new hope and a new space great recovery. Would you build this community stronger, more passionate for you, more loving and caring for one another than it has ever been before? Amen.